Good morning. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. Have y'all noticed that things that happen in church tend to be the funniest things? So something that wouldn't be funny in any other environment suddenly in church just becomes hilarious. And once you start laughing at it, you can't stop. It's like the pew will be shaking and you look down and someone's laughing at something that otherwise you probably wouldn't find very funny. And I think the reason that's the case is because we are aware of the fact that God is taking that which is very ordinary, us, and turning us into something that's very extraordinary, something holy. So this really did happen. When I was just starting out in ministry, I was in Portageville, Missouri, Southeast Missouri, and uh, it was one of my first baptisms, certainly one of my first baptisms of uh, someone who wasn't my peer, who wasn't an adult. It was a woman who was very extroverted. And I was baptizing her at the end of the invitation, so it was in church. And the church was only about 70 people, but they're all sitting there. We came down in a similar situation like this. So you had the, the wall up, and you couldn't really see. Y'all know you can't see what's going on in the water from about here down. So she's extroverted. I had learned that uh, you should get someone accustomed to the water. Because back in the old days, the heating pumps were really unreliable. And so you'd go in, and the water would be frigid, cold. So you splash the water on somebody. Well, we go down into the water, getting ready to baptize her, and I just instinctively splash water on her. And when I did, she goes, ooh, Brother Young, don't do that. <laughs> and uh, the, so the whole church is sitting there, and they're like, they didn't laugh. They just, you know, they can't see what's happening, remember, in the water. And I turn, you know, I just remember feeling so hot and turning really red. And then just as stupidly as possible, instinctively, I did it a second time. <laughs> and she turns around this time and looks at him. She says, Brother Young, stop that. And by, by now, you know, everybody's figured out that either I'm headed for prison or it was just not what it looked like. And they all started laughing. Uh, and I just thought about how many baptism stories are actually hilarious because we are so imperfect coming together, perfected by Jesus. When he looks at us, I think, he sees us the same way a mother sees her own child. Like, I don't want to be the first to tell you this, but they're really not angels. And they may not even look all that good, but you think they do. When you look at your child, you see a perfect angel, a beautiful saint. You see a handsome young prince or whatever. But the truth is they probably aren't. When God looks at the church, he sees the bride of Jesus, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the family of God, the body of Christ. He sees all of that. When we look at ourselves, eh, we're not all that good looking sometimes. But it's just what God is up to because God delights in taking that which is ordinary and turning it into that which is extraordinary. That's what God likes to do. It's like God doesn't start with the best. He starts with, well, let's just say the most ordinary. And before he's done, he has what he would call the temple of the Holy Spirit. The word is holiness. 
So holiness is the state of being transformed into the likeness of God. That's what holiness is. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 23, and it's a chapter about how the people of God are to be holy. What you're going to notice is in this chapter, holiness is largely defined in very physical categories. When we get to the New Testament, the categories are spiritualized. But let's start in the first grade. The first grade is a physical demonstration of what it looks like to be fully dedicated to God, to be coming like God. I'm going to start by reading the first verse. It should say Deuteronomy 23 verse 1. And um, so the last couple of weeks, I think have probably been very difficult for women to probably get their minds around. And, and now we switch to the men. I said to someone, you know, when you start with a verse like this and you feel a little relieved from the last couple of weeks, it was a last, a very difficult last couple of weeks because this one is about emasculation. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. Let's just pause. We won't go into this much detail. But I will say this. In a world where your family, your large family was your police force, your labor force, and your social security, it was critical that you know who your children were. Now, we live in a promiscuous age where people, you know, we got millions of people have no idea who their dad is, but not in antiquity. So if you were a king and your children were your police force, your army, your successors, your social security, your labor force, etc., the last thing you wanted were for someone else to be sleeping with your wife. So the way they did that was they made him eunuchs, that is, incapable of sleeping with someone else's wife. And to us, as brutal as that sounds, and it's brutal, you should amen that one, it's brutal. You need to know that Jesus points out that there are a lot of people who wanted to be eunuchs because to be a eunuch was to have a very high role in the palace. And so actually, Matthew 19 says some people pick that job. They actually want that job. Well, God is describing who can come into the holiest parts of the temple here in this text. When he says in the assembly, we're going to read the word assembly several times in this chapter. He doesn't mean who can be in Israel. He doesn't mean that. He welcomes all the foreigners. What he means is who can go into the holy areas of the temple. And what he says is eunuchs aren't allowed. Why? Well, if you go all the way back and look at earlier parts of Deuteronomy, you find out that God says, lo, physically speaking, those who enter into the holy areas, they can't have messed up their bodies. It's a physical symbol of holiness. Let's keep reading. He talks about several nationalities now, and he has different rules for different nationalities. But two nationalities are never allowed to come into the assembly, which again means the holy areas of the temple. No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even the 10th generation. We're not real sure what the forbidden marriage is here, but I will remind you that Jesus is a descendant of a Canaanite woman. So whatever else it means, somehow or another, Jesus demonstrates to us that God welcomes everybody into his home now. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. Probably means forever. We're not sure. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor and Aram, Nachar Ayama is the way you pronounce the word. That's not how we would say it. To pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turn the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. I just want to pause and say something here. It would be easy for us to think that the Bible is filled with myths and fables, uh, sort of like Aesop's fables, you know, just 
stories that never actually really happened. But the Bible tells historical fact. It's a trustworthy book. So in 1967, archaeologists digging around on the east side of the Jordan River in the country of Jordan uncovered the remains of a fresco or a wall painting that dates from about the end of the ninth century before Christ. This is the earliest Aramaic writing in history that we know of. It's actually the story of Balaam, son of Beor. The guy's actually been confirmed archaeologically, and he evidently was a prominent figure in this area of Moab, or what's also called Ammon. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them, that is, with the Moabites or the Ammonites, as long as you live. Do not despise an Edomite, for the Edomites are related to you. Edom uh, is another name for Esau, who was the brother of Jacob, whose other name is Israel. Do not despise an Egyptian because you resided as foreigners in their country. The third generation of children born to them may enter into the assembly of the Lord. So what we're saying is, on the east side of the Jordan, the Ammonites and the Moabites are forbidden to 10 generations to entering into this holy area. The Edomites and the Egyptians are permitted after three generations. What does all that mean? It means that God is using, in some sense or another, a physical boundary to describe to us what holiness looks like. Holiness means you have to keep some things out. That's really hard for North Americans, by the way. You know, we've cultivated a very inclusive culture in North America, at least we're trying to. And it's hard for us to think that some people might be excluded simply because of their nationality. But I remind you in Deuteronomy, we're getting a first grade lesson in holiness. We get to graduate school in the New Testament where we learn that Moabite and the Ammonite are welcome into the kingdom of God, but evil is not. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a few moments. I do want to say about this forbidden marriage, whatever else it means, we know that Jesus is a descendant of a Canaanite woman, Rahab, who is part of his ancestry. In fact, Jesus is also the descendant of a Moabite woman, Ruth. So in his ancestry, Jesus has both the Canaanite of the forbidden marriage and the Moabite who was never allowed in the temple. And Jesus not only goes to the temple, he lives in the temple. It is his temple. Let's keep reading. Now, the next few verses describe a battle camp. So they're not discussing Israel. They're talking about a battle camp when you go out to battle. And even when you go out to battle, God says, you have to practice holiness. And he articulates what it looks like. When you're encamped against your enemies, keep away from everything impure. If, your man is, uh, if one of your men is unclean because of a nocturnal emission, he's to go outside to the camp and stay there. But as evening approaches, he's to wash himself. And at sunset, he may return to the camp. Again, these are just physical lessons, if we call them object lessons, if you will, in holiness, in the New Testament, they're all spiritualized. That is, it's spiritual holiness to which we're called in the New Testament, not a physical form of holiness. Designate a place outside the camp where you can go relieve yourself. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. For the Lord your God moves about in the camp to protect you and deliver your enemies to you. This is actually probably the most important sentence in the whole chapter because it tells you what's going on. God is moving among you. And when God is moving among you, there's a certain decor you need to show. You show decor when God is around. You don't just act any way you want to when the Lord God Almighty is in your presence. That's what's being done in this text. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. So hygiene is a physical symbol, an object lesson in holiness in this text. Verse 15. 
If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Let them live among you wherever they like and in whatever town they choose, do not oppress them. I just want to pause and make a couple of observations. I'll, I'll do it quickly. One, notice that ethics are woven into holiness. Ethics and holiness are woven together in the Bible. And, and by the way, that's because without holiness, there are no ethics. That's really important to remember. If humans aren't created in the image of God, then there's no wrong way to treat a human. If humans are not created in the image of God, then anything goes. Ethics depend on holiness. And so in this text, we have holiness and ethics woven together. You know, second observation I want to make about this is I've talked about slavery as it relates to the book of Deuteronomy several times. I pointed out how that in 1 Timothy, the first chapter, beginning at verse 8, Paul says that the practice of slavery as we know it is the equivalent of murdering your mother and your father. That's how evil it is. I can't help but wonder still how it is that white slaveholders in the American South could read a text like that and not be affected. Or how could white slaveholders in the American South read a text like this if a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. How could white slaveholders read that verse in church week in and week out and week in and week out and not be phased by it? I've got an answer for you. You know what the answer is? Because they had hard hearts. Because they had already sold their souls. So here's what happens. This is the warning for us. Whenever you see a verse that disagrees with you, the first thing that's going to happen in your heart is maybe it doesn't mean what it says. That's what's going to happen. And I guarantee you that's what white slaveholders were saying. They had somebody come in with a pipe, probably had a really nice beard, and he stroked his beard and he said, well, obviously the text doesn't mean what it says. Or someone else probably made the argument, well, if we did this, it would destroy our economy. So it can't possibly mean what it says. I just want to make sure you understand. That's why the American South was destroyed. Like that's what God has to do when cultures get so far from what the Bible clearly teaches. But the problem is still with us because often we read a scripture and we say, well, obviously it doesn't mean what it says. We blow past it. It's a warning when you read a scripture and it does not resonate with you. The question to ask is not what's wrong with this scripture. The question to ask is, what's wrong with my heart that I don't want to believe it? That's the question to ask. I just had to stop and make that observation. Let's keep reading. Verse 17. No Israelite, man or woman, is to become a shrine prostitute. You must not bring the earnings of a female prostitute or a male prostitute into the house of the Lord your God to pay any vow because the Lord your God detests them. So I've mentioned this before. In Canaanite religion, prostitution was a prominent feature of worship. Very hard for us to understand, although I think North America's will find a way to get there before it's over with if we keep this slide we're in. And God says, I detest it. I detest that. In fact, this is one reason why God had to wipe out the Canaanites. The culture was so corrupted that the only, the only way to deal with it was extermination. It's terrible to hear that, but it's true. So God says, I don't want you doing that, and I don't want any money that comes from it. Don't, don't you mix with my holy congregation, money that was gained through such idolatry. Do not charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, 
but not a fellow Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you're entering to possess. So two other texts in the Old Testament mention the payment of interest or the, the charging of interest. And in each of those texts, interest is tied to helping the poor. That is, you don't charge interest when you're helping the poor. I think it's possible that this text is actually um, reflecting back on those. In other words, it's possible this text is not really dealing with business arrangements as we think of them. It's dealing with how you help people who are poor. So if you have someone who's poor, you help them out. You don't charge them interest. But you should know that the early church, really, I should say the church right up until about the 17th or 18th century, believed that this text applied to Christians as well, which means that for centuries, Christians wouldn't operate banks. Because as you well know, you can't operate a bank if you don't charge interest. That's one reason why in Europe at least, Jews were generally the ones who operated the banks because they were allowed by law to charge a foreigner, but not one another. I just bring that up just as something to ponder. The real principle, the precept behind this is don't take advantage of one another. Don't take advantage of one another. And you see again, ethics are woven in to holiness. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand uh, it of you, and you'll be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord with your own mouth. Put another way, you can freely enter into a vow, but once you do, you need to keep your word. Let me just say this. Be careful what you say, because God holds you accountable for every word that comes out of your mouth. If you say something, do it. If you don't think you're going to do it, don't say it. I was involved in a conversation this past week with someone who uh, had worked with Mayor Ernest Burgess, who was at first service uh, at the East Campus here. And this person was telling me that when they worked for the mayor, when he said something, they said, by the way, Mayor Burgess was an elder at North Boulevard as well. What a prince of a man. You know, I sat next to Mayor Burgess for 10 years in elders meetings. Every, sun, every Wednesday night, I sat next to him. Never once saw that man say, say or do anything that looked like he ran the, as far as he could from anything that might look like a compromise of his integrity. This guy was telling me when Mayor Burgess said something, it was as good as a signed contract. It was as good as a signed contract. You know what? That needs to be the quality of your word as well. That if you say it, you don't have to say it. But once you say it, you need to be real, willing to die for it. That's how serious God takes what we say. That's what the text is about. You don't have to make a vow, but once you do, <laughs> you better stick to it because God's paying attention. The world's built on the fabric of truth and every distruth, every dishonest statement, every lie tears the fabric of the world in which we must all live. All right, let's start to wrap it up. If you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to the standing grain. This is a reference to that uh, legendary Arab hospitality where even today, uh, if you visit a Bedouin camp especially, but, uh, but it, it, Arab culture at large, it's a very, very uh, hospitable culture. Uh, so I've got, I've got Arab friends in the Middle East. I've done business with Arab friends in the Middle East and very hospitable culture, especially to the, to the guest, to the traveler, that you just treat, you treat travelers right. And in a sense, this has been reflected, but here's what you don't do. You can eat the grapes in someone else's vineyard, but you're not supposed to put them in a basket and take them home with you. 
And if you're walking through somebody's grain field, you can pull the kernels off and chew on them. If you're down in South Georgia, you can eat the peanuts as you walk through a peanut field, but you can't make peanut butter out of it. You can't take it home with you. It's just a reference to taking care of the traveler. Again, ethics and holiness woven together in this text. Now, let's bring this up to the church of Jesus Christ. We've seen the object lesson that Deuteronomy 23 gives us, a very physical object lesson about what to do with the body and how to keep a camp clean and which person can and cannot come into the temple. What's the New Testament application? What's the precept? The answer still is the same. God wants us to keep the church holy. Just holiness means something a little differently now. And we keep the church holy in a way different than the way that the Israelites kept the temple holy. And I want to give you five ideas that I think that we can use that will keep the church holy. I just randomly picked these because they seem to me to be things that would be really helpful to hear coming out of the pandemic. I'm not suggesting we're fully out, but we are coming out. Thank the Lord. And so I've picked five things that I just think are really important. I'm going to share them with you and then we're going to end it. Here's the first one. In order to keep the church of Jesus Christ holy, you need to love it and you need to make it a priority. I don't really think we have a big problem with this at North Boulevard, but I'm going to say that North Americans have a really, really hard time making a commitment and then living up to it. The church is never stronger than the faith of its members. If we're not committed to one another, if we haven't made the church a priority, if you don't make a church a priority in your life, you're weakening the body of Christ. And so it's really important for us to be the holy body of Christ that we make it a priority. And I want to make sure you understand this. It's not just that your children see, because they do, and I'll make sure you know that. If you're really easily knocked out of church, your children notice that. And there's a really good chance that you're cursing your children. I'm not sure how many of us really think about that. When you're not all that faithful, you know what happens to the next generation? They become unfaithful. And you know what happens to the third generation? They become anti-faithful. You don't believe that? Yeah, when you start to compromise, your kids will fully compromise and their kids will hate your faith. If you don't believe that, just ask many of the children we see in North America today. 43% of those 25 and younger filling out surveys in the last couple of months, have said that they think it's irrelevant whether there is a God. It means nothing to them. At the same time, they hate the faith of their grandparents. What happens is once I'm a little compromised, I curse my kids. And then their kids have no clue why I would ever have even bothered with it. So we really do need to make a very serious commitment to the people of God. But remind yourself, it's not just for my kids. I mean, think of what the church is. It is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where the Holy Spirit works. When the New Testament is addressing people who believe, it almost always is addressing the church, not the individual believer. We, we, we're very individualistic in North America. That's great. I'm fine with it. I like it in many ways. But don't forget the fact we belong to the people of God, and each one of us is part of it. We belong to one another. When I'm missing, your hampers. It's like walking with part of your body missing. You can't do it well. The church is the family of God. It's like having Christmas without half your family there. The church, it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's like going to temple and half the furniture's not there. 
or some of the stones are missing from the wall. So what we need to do is make sure that we are really resolved. I'm in this thing. I'm in it. And if things continue to get more and more difficult for believers in America, and I, th I think they are, the College of the Ozarks, a Christian university, a Christian church university down in Ozark, Missouri, just being bullied right now by the federal government. that They're going to have to start admitting uh, people. I I'll stop. I've got more to say, but not now. What I want to say is they've just lost a lawsuit. They're being bullied. And when you're being bullied, you know what you need? You need people who are on your side who love you. You need people who are going to stand with you. So make a commitment to love the church. As Peter says, now that you've purified yourself by truth, love one another deeply. All right, number two, because I want to keep moving. Keep the church's standards high, but love people up to those standards. So here's the real challenge that we face in church. We face the challenge of, on the one hand, wanting to be a holy people. On the other hand, we're all sinners. How do you sort that out? So, in some churches, people walk in. This happens in Murfreesboro. And they say, I've heard this even recently about North Boulevard. I could never be as good as those people are. Oh, my goodness, wish you'd come to me. I'll go through our list of sins. Like, we're, we are sinners. We, I'm a sinner, and your sin is no worse than my sin. But we also have people who go to churches and say, man, have you seen those folks? They have no standards. Here's the right formula. The right formula is we take everybody, but we love them enough to help them become what God has in store for them. Think of it like a 12-step program. You go to a 12-step program. Let's say it's Alcoholics Anonymous. You go to AA. What do they say at the front door of AA? No, 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 no. You can't come here if you have alcohol problems because we're all, we're all perfect people. No, they don't say that. But let me tell you what else they don't say. You don't walk into AA and they say, you know, we've been reading this book lately and we're convinced alcoholism's not a problem. We just found out all this time we thought it was bad. Now we know it's okay. No, that's not what AA does. What AA does is it says our doors are open to everybody and together we're going to aspire to a new level. And that's the church. Everybody is welcome at North Boulevard. Come one, come all. But we will love you enough to do for you what you are doing for me. And that is helping me not stay stuck in my sin, but giving me something to aspire to. We keep the standards high, but we understand we may have to love people for many years before they ever start to attain those standards. I'll put it this way, out of Galatians chapter 6. If someone's caught in a sin, restore them and do it gently, Paul says. Watch yourself so that you don't fall. Carry one another's burdens. The thing that we want to avoid is that ditch on one side or the chasm on the other where we either become legalistic, which asserts that you have to be good before you can come here, but we also don't want to become licentious where we say we have no standards. No, we have high standards and high ideals, but we'll take anybody who wants to flourish towards those ideals. All right, number three, encourage one another. Don't underestimate the power of encouragement. I think perhaps the greatest tool in your spiritual toolbox for helping other people is the tool of encouragement. How many of you could raise your hand to this? At some point in your life when you just didn't know if you could go on, someone said the exact right words. And it flipped you. Yeah, some of you are already raising your hand. Me too. I could raise both hands and both feet if I could get them up. 
<laughs> yeah, they don't move very well anymore. Um, Encouragement is such a tremendous source of strength. Here's how the Hebrew writer puts it. He says, encourage one another daily, daily, as long as it's called today. So anytime you call the day today, you should be encouraging somebody. So is it today? Have you encouraged somebody? You know this is a command, right? It's not a good idea. It's not a recommendation. It's not an option. It's not a fill in the blank. It's a command from God. As long as it's today, you should be encouraging somebody. And I'm just going to tell you, there's somebody in your, in your world, somebody in your sphere, in your orbit that needs your encouragement. So I taught several years at Lipscomb University, and um, this is before Dr. Flatt was the president. It was back when Dr. Hazlip was the president. Some of the new professors met with uh, Dr. Hazlip, the prince of a man, by the way, as is Dr. Flatt. And uh, somebody raised a question to tell us what do we need to do. And he, this was, this was the, he gave an answer, but this is the answer I remember. It's like the, this is one of the best answers I've ever heard to a question. Harold Hazlip said, here's what I really want you to do. When you're walking down the sidewalk at Lipscomb University and you see anybody, you pass anybody, what I really want you to do is make eye contact and smile. It sounds so easy, but it's such a big deal that somebody smiled at me, that somebody actually noticed me. It's this tremendous power found in encouragement. And you can do that in a crowd of 2,500 people, which is probably what we'll have today. But I want to tell you, if you really want to get involved in someone's life and you really need to do this, you have to get in a small group to do it. I'm not trying to promote a program, although I'm happy to promote a program. But what I'm saying is you don't stand a prayer of getting to know somebody well enough really to lift them out of where they may be if you aren't in a small group with them. You just can't get to know them well. And I want to say this to you on our online campus. We're we're making a go of an online campus. It's an experiment. Now, we're committed to it. I don't mean to imply we're not, but we've never done an online campus. There are other churches that have really seriously invested lots of money, as we have as well, and making an online campus work, making it permanent. But I want to tell you, if you're in the online campus, if you don't join a small group, we probably can't hold on to you. It, it probably is not going to work. And here's why. We will simply become a television program for you, and we're really not all that good. Like, I can tell you already, there's about 15 other programs I'd rather watch than me, and I'm pretty sure you would too. It's only when you think of yourself as belonging to the family that suddenly we're a church. And that means a small group. So if you're not in a small group, you're not using the power of encouragement that God has entrusted to you. And that's one reason why I really want to encourage you. You need to get in a small group. All right, we guys got two more. Be open-hearted in our gatherings. Hey, guys, have y'all noticed that almost not a single one of you is wearing, is that a phrase, almost not a single one? Almost none of you is wearing a mask, just a few of you. We're coming out of the pandemic. We're not out yet. I don't mean to imply that we are. But uh, Rutherford County's lost somewhere right at 450 people to COVID since the outbreak. So it's not, I don't think it's time for us to have the big party. But I will say this. As we come out of COVID, have you not felt the joy of getting back together? I mean, have you not sensed it? It's like, I thought, I thought it was pretty awesome before the pandemic. I'm looking at you, Sean, because I thought the music was awesome before the pandemic. But now it's just like rocking the house. 
Every Sunday is like, it's, it's like a big concert or something. I just want to say, there's a blessing that we can grab out of the pandemic that says, all right, here's one thing we learned. We like being with each other. And we like raising the roof. In fact, that's really what our services are about. This is how the Hebrew writer puts it in chapter 10. He says, consider how you can spur one another on to love and good works, how you can encourage one another by not giving up gathering together. In other words, he connects the Sunday service to encouragement, to provoking one another to love and good works. Or I'll put it this way. The Sunday gathering is the pep rally before the big game. The big game starts in 30 minutes. As soon as we finish the closing prayer and you shake the last hand, the big game starts. This is the pep rally. Like we're pepping ourselves up for the week ahead of us. Because this week, who knows what the evil one's going to hurl at us. But we're going to be so revved and so charged that when it comes, we're going to knock it out. If that's the case, you can cut loose. It's all right. You know, the pandemic's over. It's okay to cut loose now. Nobody's watching. Nobody cares anymore if they ever did. Nobody cares. I was teasing. I don't say, Rodney, do I have your permission? Ten years ago, Rodney Bond started clapping at one of the services. I, I don't remember which one it was, Rodney. And I remember the first time Rodney Bond clapped in a song at North Boulevard. Every, like, 500 people turned over like, what is that? What's happening? They thought maybe there was a... For all we knew, someone was doing construction in the back and there was banging of a hammer. I mean, for like a month and a half, this is my memory and I might be wrong, but for a month and a half, Rodney clapped in the songs and everybody would look back and people afterwards would say, what was that? Did you hear that back there? And it's like, oh, somebody back there is clapping, I guess. I, thought, I don't know what it is. And now we're all Rodney Bonds. Now, now it's like, it's okay to be Rodney now. It's okay to be you, Rodney. I'm just saying, cut loose. Why not? The pandemic tied us down for so long. We couldn't even meet for 10 weeks. When we met, it was fun, but it's not parking lot. You had to honk your horn. When we came together, it was with a mass. Finally, we can worship God. It's okay to cut loose. This is the pep rally. It's all right to be peppy. That's all I'm saying. And then I'll just end with this one. Rodney, I didn't get your permission. I assume I'm okay. Were you waving at me, stop, or it's okay? <laughs> Keep disciple making the main thing. Every church is tempted to make every single thing that someone thinks of the main thing. And I'm going to tell you what Jesus told you. What does it profit a church if it gains the whole world and never makes a disciple? And the answer is nothing. If the UN can do it, let the UN do it. We make disciples. That's what we do. We're the only ones who can do it. So let's do it. When we do these things in a way not really similar, I don't think, not really similar to the description in Deuteronomy 23 of the assembly of the Jews, but by metaphorical extinction, maybe, we too become a holy people where the, the Lord God walks around and says, look at all this holiness. Where God looks at us and you know what he sees? He doesn't see all the mistakes and the sins and the shortcomings, all the stuff we see. He sees his child. 
beautiful child. He sees his wife. He sees a temple. He sees, as Paul says, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And I'd be robbing you of something if I didn't come back to this text. Because even after talking about the foreigner, the eunuch, Isaiah, who bridges the Torah, the Old Testament books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the coming of Jesus. Isaiah is right between them chronologically. He's also right between them in the Bible. Isaiah says, hey, let no foreigner who's bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree, for this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. God says, I'm going to welcome, I'm going to welcome every foreigner. I'm going to take even eunuchs in. By the way, this phrase, a memorial and a name, you know what it is in Hebrew? A handful of you will recognize this when I say it in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it is Yad Vashem, a hand and a name, Yad Vashem. If you go to Jerusalem, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, the Israeli Holocaust Museum is called Yad Vashem. It's named after this verse in which the Jews who survived the Holocaust said, God will still give us a name and a hand. And God says that. It's still open. It's now open for everybody. The people of God, we're in business. The doors are open and everybody is welcome. And that explains this text, Acts chapter 8, where the very first black African baptized that we know of was a eunuch from Ethiopia. So Ethiopian biblical days would have been what we call Sudan, would have just barely overlapped with what we consider to be Ethiopia. The word translated Ethiopian meant a, 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 a black African. This guy, probably only within weeks, maybe a couple of months of the crucifixion of Jesus, he's gone to Jerusalem. He's on his way home in a chariot. He's a eunuch. He's an African. God sends Philip out through the Holy Spirit. Philip finds this guy in his chariot. And by the way, you know what book the guy's reading? He's reading Isaiah. And Philip finds him, and he starts to tell him about Jesus. And the guy says what? Remember? We'll go back to baptism. He says, hey, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? By the way, if you go to Ethiopia today, they'll tell you that the Ethiopian church was founded by this guy. And that's probably true. And Philip and the Ethiopian go down into the water and he makes this great confession and Philip baptizes him and he comes up out of the water and the Holy Spirit grabs Philip and takes him far, far away. Who knows where he went? And the Ethiopian eunuch goes on his way partying, celebrating, rejoicing. So to be a holy people is to be the source of a relationship with God that ought to bring us great joy. It's in our hands to be holy. We get to make the decision. In fact, uh, maybe for some of you, it's a good time for us to talk about baptism. I know that uh, we had two baptisms last week. You know, even during 2020, we had 70-something baptisms. I think we're pushing 80 baptisms. Year before that, we had 130 baptisms in 2019, believe it or not. And I can tell you, as we used to say, the water is hot. (laughs) <laughs> and, I, and I don't do this anymore. So, 
I, st I stopped about 35 years ago. Um, Hey, you want to be holy? You want to be in the, in, in, in the actual community, the assembly of God? This is how you get into it. You repent of your sins, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you seal the deal in baptism. That's why we keep the water warm up here. So let's stand up, let's sing online, here in person. If you've got a response that you need us to know about, you tell us, either at the front or at the back while we sing this song.